Here the Voice in Prayer explores Christianity and belief in early modern Europe. This podcast seeks to understand the cascading changes and transformations to Christian belief in the years between Luther and Wesley, the age of early modern Europe. To know the world of Christian belief in the early modern age is to know our own modern society, its roots, hang-ups, and preoccupations. We will explore the contours, practices, and flashpoints in the story of European belief in the crucial time of modernity's beginnings. The Christian transformations of the early modern age are the origin of our own age. My name is Kyle Robinson, and I am professor of European history at Olivet Nazarene University. Join me as each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss the beliefs, practices, and hangups of the early modern age. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Hear the Voice in Prayer, a podcast about Christianity and belief in early modern Europe. Today, we're going to explore a little bit about the life of Martin Luther and its relationship to evil, to his theology and philosophy of evil, as expressed throughout his life. Of course, Martin Luther is the founding figure, really, in many ways, of the Reformation. He is the man whose 95 theses, his protests at Wittenberg in 1517, uh, on October the 31st, 1517, begins the long borne out process of the rise of Protestantism, of the creation of this new reformed Protestant version of Christianity, reformed vision of the church that will inspire others across Europe to take up their own critique of Rome and embrace this protest against the authority of the Pope, a redefinition of things like uh, sin and free will and indeed the power of evil itself. I think it's hardly surprising at all that it's this question of the devil, this question of evil, the question of our relationship to sin and sinfulness that in many ways aspires inspires, rather, uh, much of Martin Luther's critique and much of his protest in regard to the old form of medieval piety, the old form of Christian belief. So those are some of our topics that we're going to explore today, some of the topics that we're going to investigate. And joining me for this process is Olivet student Noah Garcia. Hello, Noah. Hello, Dr. Robinson. So, Noah, I'm glad you're with me today. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, what's your year here at Olivet, your major, anything about yourself? Yeah, well, like you said, my name is Noah Garcia. I am from Milford, Illinois. Uh, there's nothing there other than a Casey's <laughs> and a Dollar General. Well, that's all I need, so. Oh, yeah, basically. <laughs> this is my second year at Olivet, and I am a double major, and I am, that is history and political science, and that's really about it. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. So uh, today you're going to tell us again, as I said, about this world of, of Martin Luther, Martin Luther and his relationship to evil and, and the devil and his assessment of our relationship to those two things as well, what we might call his general theology, perhaps, of, of sinfulness. Um, but before we really dive into that topic, can you tell me a little bit about maybe why you were interested in this subject to begin with? What drew you to Martin Luther's quandary, Martin Luther's problem, Martin Luther's struggle with this idea of evil and the devil? Well, what initially drew me was that it seemed humorous at first. Uh, we read like his personal struggles, like how he would chase the devil away with farts, 
Right, exactly. So some bodily functions. Yeah. Challenging evil, yeah. And then the so-called legend of him throwing his inkwell at the wall at the castle. Right, I think you can go and see that at the Wartburg in Germany, right? The ink stains. Yeah. Right, where Martin Luther threw his, his ink at the devil. Yeah, it seemed all humorous and just reminded me of a water boy, the mother. Oh, yeah. Everything was a devil. Right, that's the and devil. So, yeah. So right. that's what initially drew me, and so I wanted to see if like all this stuff is actually true, and it turns right. out, for the most part, it was. Yeah, exactly. That was a great uh, Waterboy reference, by the way. There you go. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we can see this in a lot of things, too, right? Even in one of Martin Luther's most famous hymns, right? One of these classic expressions, the Reformation, right? In his hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is, Mighty Fortress is Our God, um, he says that God is our weapon and defense. He helps us in our every need, right? But there's still, right, the old evil enemy that's determined to get us. Um, he makes his cruel plans with might and cruel cunning, right? And the whole world, right, full of devils, e- eager to swallow us, but we shouldn't have fear, right, because we will still be saved, right? So this is a fundamental feature of Martin Luther, a fundamental feature of his struggle over uh, piety, struggle with sinfulness. But this, of course, doesn't come out of, of nowhere. We're often sort of forward-focused in a way, right, with, with Martin Luther. We think of all the things he creates with the Reformation. But, of course, he's, he's a product of the late medieval world. He's a product of late medieval Catholic piety. He spends a substantial portion of his early life as an Augustinian monk, right, as someone steeped in Catholic piety, steeped in the legacy of the medieval discussion surrounding evil, the medieval discussion surrounding the reality of the devil. So what are some of those characteristics then of late medieval piety when it comes to evil and the devil? Right? What can some what are some conclusions that we can make? A conclusion one can make is that the devil was cause of all evil. Thunderstorms were caused by the devil. Illnesses were caused by the devil. And so basically like I said, the devil was a cause of all evil. Yeah, exactly. He's not just a metaphor, right? I think sometimes in in the 21st century, we can think of the devil as like a metaphor for evil, but for a medieval man, uh, there's substance to that metaphor, right? He is yeah. a, a thing, a real thing, who is, in fact, as you say, intervening in the world, right? Causing thunderstorms, causing crop failure, and tempting and interacting with, with people, tempting women into witchcraft, right? Um, mm-hmm. And all of these facets of the devil's evil power and presence with us. We know that in Luther's personal life, his parents, right, are being influenced by this. His parents are sort of instructing the young Luther, right, the boy Luther, in aspects of this. You, and you found some stuff, right, about his parents and, and what they have to say about the power of the devil, right, Noah? Yeah, his parents, Hans and Margaret, uh, they were deeply influenced by the late medieval piety. Uh, this was a, an example was with his mother, Margaret. Uh, she actually believed that their neighbor was actually a witch, and so she made sure to be extra nice to her. So I thought that was interesting. And yeah. I could see how Martin was influenced by his mother. Right, yeah, his mother, right, thinking that their neighbor's a witch, right, this a woman who's been seduced and brought under the devil's influence then, right? So just from that one sort of incidental piece of evidence, we, we realize that, again, Martin Luther is steeped in this idea. Yeah. Steeped in this background of, of evil, of the reality of the devil. Again, beyond metaphor, right? Um, the reality of the devil in everyday life. So that's a little bit, right, one sort of piece of evidence we have from the life of early Luther, um, that his parents are giving him this background, giving him this background. And I think what you said about the thunderstorms, right, thunderstorms being caused by the devil, that might also help explain this famous conversion moment, right, of Luther, where he's sort of on the way to law school, 
at the instruction of his father, and he sort of knocked off his transportation, his donkey or his mule, or sort of knocked to the ground if he was walking on the way to school by this massive thunderstorm. He freaks out and, and dedicates his life to St. Anne, and that's how he enters into the life of, of the monastery. But before we get into that, like, let's just establish some chronology about the life of Martin Luther. I don't think we've done that yet. So when is, when is he born? When does he die, right? Where is he from? What are some of these basic features of Martin Luther's life? Yeah, so Martin Luther was born on November 10th, 1483, to Hans and Margaret Luther. Oh, I forgot to mention this earlier, but there's actually an interesting story about his conception. Oh, Comple- interesting. Completely yeah. false, but Luther's mother was subdued by the devil, and this was used by his uh, Luther's enemies. Ah, uh, so this is a Catholic, a scurrilous Catholic rumor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this also ties in with his death in a way, for Luther died on February 18th, 1546, uh, during his death. Well, before his, while he's on his deathbed, they made sure to uh, betray his death as a peaceful experience rather than like a... A torn experience, yeah, like right? a sudden cardiac arrest. Yeah. Well, and that's not peaceful to make sure like a violent death was often associated with like one being taken by the devil. Hmm. And so they wouldn't portray it as peaceful. So that's... They made sure it was described as that. As that. So yeah, this comforted, assured of salvation, basically, death, which maybe there's even more urgency for that in sort of this immediate post-Protestant understanding of death as sort of another topic, right? Because there's no more last rites. There's no more priest administering that particular sacrament so that the soul can enter peacefully into perhaps purgatory, maybe if you're lucky heaven. Um, And so, yeah, no, I would think that there's, like you say, there's this imperative that Luther's death be presented as peaceful then. Like his soul is at rest. He is assured of his salvation is sola fide, sola gratia, faith alone, grace alone, based on the Bible, scripture alone, have guaranteed his peaceful transition to the next life. Yeah, so that's a bit of a, right, situating Luther's life. And it's interesting, as you say, that there's this Catholic rumor that his mother is seduced by the devil, right? And that's where Luther Luther comes from. So even the beginning and even the end of Luther's life touch on these interactive elements of, of Satan's potential within the human world of the devil's interaction with us. But as I said earlier, so what is it? I think it's 1505. Luther has this thunderstorm experience on the road, kind of like St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He he dedicates his life to St. Anne, and then he goes into an Augustinian monastery, an honest Augustinian monastery in the German town of Erfurt, right? So Luther from um, Saxony, from electoral Saxony, and uh, he enters the world of monasticism. What's the role, maybe? What are some things shaping Luther's theology during his time as a monk in regards to evil? Well, during Luther's time as a monk, he would be in- deeply influenced by scripture and St. Augustine, and these would have a profound effect on his beliefs. Yeah, exactly. St. Augustine or St. Augustine, this sort of church father, right? The fourth century Bishop of Hippo. And a lot of his writings really are about the problem of evil, the problem of sin. And if we know anything about confessions, one of his most famous works, um, Augustine or Augustine, uh, it describes the process of him sort of reckoning with the idea of evil itself. What is evil? Is evil this own force, right? That's empowered itself. Is it this thing that's sort of almost equal with God in a sort of Manichaean sense, right? The Manichaeans, the sect of the Manichaeans being this early challenge to Christianity uh, in the time of uh, St. Augustine? Or is evil actually the absence of God? That's what St. Augustine ultimately comes to, that it's this vacuum, right, where we deny God, 
Which is fascinating to think about in terms of Luther, because Luther kind of has a, a, a sense that's almost Manichaean, right? He's influenced by Augustine, the power of sin, the power of original sin, but I sometimes I think he maybe misses some of these Augustine ideas or Augustinian ideas about God as being ultimately all the more powerful and evil is really sort of the absence of the good rather than this force that's powerful in its own right that can challenge God, which creates some theological issues. But nonetheless, right, that's, right, as you say, Noah, sort of Luther is drawing from this tradition, right, the tradition of the church fathers, the tradition of um, his monastic house, right, of, of the, the works of St. Augustine or St. Augustine to draw these conclusions. So Luther is sort of a star in his monastery in some way. He's kind of this golden boy. And that's what allows him to travel to Rome, right? So Luther actually travels to Rome and he has some sort of life-altering experiences in, in some way in his encounter of Rome that also give him some thought, give him some reflection about evil, right? Um, he has some pretty critical things to say about Rome, doesn't he? Right? What is Luther's experience of what's supposed to be the holiest city in Christendom? Yeah, uh, he famously said, if there is a hell, then Rome is built on it. So what he is, uh, Luther entered Rome as a deeply devoured Catholic monk. He would leave a skeptical man. Yes, yeah, exactly. And yeah. he was not alone with his thoughts on Rome. It was just like a, the well-known Erasmus. Once he visited Rome, he had the same belief as Luther did. And this is because, well, when one imagines Rome, one, like, imagines... Again, like a, a holy city, right? Yeah. Something that's sort of, like, it's the seat, right? The universal seat, as it was called, of, of Christendom, right? Of Christianity. Yeah, and that's... That was there at all. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot a lot more sort of bad things are going on. Do you have any examples of those? Like some of the bad things that maybe were going on in Rome for our listeners? No, nah, it just gave me a lot of Vegas vibes. Oh, yeah, Vegas vibes. Yeah, Sin City, right, is what Rome in the early 16th century. Yeah. So, yeah, we have like our famous Renaissance popes, right? Some of them with children, right? That's not something a pope is supposed to have, right? Children. No. I think Luther talks about like priests getting in fist fights, um, trying to say the mass at different churches. He mentions sort of seeing cardinals and bishops go into famous houses of ill repute, we can call them, right? Uh, our listeners know what we mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when he's in Rome, right? So it's not, it's not a place of piety then, is it? Right? It's not a no. place of piety, right? So what was his quote again about Rome? Right? It's a, if there is a hell, yeah. then Rome is built on it. There's a hell, then Rome is built on it. Rome is built upon it. Like, yeah, I mean, startling words, right? Yeah. Like while he was there, he tried like keeping to his faith. Like he would partake in daily mass. He even did the kneeling ascent of the Santa Scala. Oh, uh, yes, the holy stairs. Yeah. yeah. Well, at each step, you'd be kneeling, and then you'd go up each step, and you'd say an Our Father. And right. so once you made it all the way to the top, a soul would be free from purgatory. And so Luther was hoping that once he actually completed it, that his grandfather would be freed. However, midway through, he realized that his actions are all in vain. Right. That the just shall live by faith was right. one of his key sayings. Right. Nothing he can do. Right. can save his grandfather's soul. That's the realization he has, right? That's between his grandfather's soul and God, right? This is part of that slow realization of, like you say, right? Justified by faith, right? Faith alone. Faith is what justifies us, not our actions, right? So that's part of these realizations. And when Luther returns back to the monastery in, in Erfurt, kind of is in the midst of a spiritual crisis. And I think he, he turns to scripture in a way to try and resolve that. Do you have any sense of 
maybe where he goes in scripture, what he can has. We've already got a hint of that. What he has as his conclusion as a result of turning to scripture after this trip to Rome. Yeah, well, Luther was uh, heavily influenced by Paul and the book of Job. Hmm. Actually, before uh, Luther's time at the monastery, monastery uh, his mentor, uh, Johann von Staupitz. Yeah, Staupitz. Yeah, Staupitz. Yeah, I'm never sure. I'm not the best German pronouncer. I should have learned German. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Well, yeah. Well, anyway, in 1498, uh, his mentor, uh, Luther's mentor, uh, did like a whole sermon series on the book of Job. Oh, interesting. However, he was not able to finish it because it was so immense. He was only able to muscle away through the second chapter at the most. And this covered like two months, I believe. So yeah, why don't you tell our our listeners who might not be aware, sort of what is the subject of the book of, of Job or the book of Job, as people, yeah. people without a Christian background might be inclined to call it. So yeah, what is the subject of the book of Job? Yeah, well, the re- in the book of Job, uh, the reader is presented with a deeply devoted man. His life is going well for him, and so Satan and God basically make a bet. Well, Satan bets God that Job is only pious and devoted to God, because his life is good, and God is like a bet. I, yeah, bring it on, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he, he allows uh, Satan to cause uh, tortures on Job's life, but Satan cannot kill Job. Right, that's the one condition. Like, yeah. He can't actually kill Job. But, like, he can kill his rest of his family. Right, everyone but, around Job. <laughs> but not him. And he, yeah, it's all these stuff. I'm trying to remember like all the stuff that happens to Job. Like like you said, his family dies. Like I think his, his sheep die at one point, which is like a major crisis. In the ancient Middle East, when yeah. your sheep go, everything else. Like the sheep hits the fan, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, forget <laughs> his children, the sheep is where it's at. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so it's interesting then that von Staupitz would go to that and preach some some sermons, a series on that, like you say, or begin to, as Luther is sort of in this process, it's a spiritual mentor, like the same man who's wrestled with this idea, right? Why does why does God test us maybe with evil, right? Why does God allow this to happen? That's why I was what I've what I've wondered, right? Yeah. What yeah. like what is the point of the book of Job in the Bible, right? To say that, right? It's kind of weird to think about like God and Satan basically having a bet over this guy in some sense, but I'm sure there's a deeper theological meaning yeah. than that, a better interpretation, right? So it's the same meant spiritual mentor then that is sort of trying to guide Luther through this crisis. And he's the one I think that uh, Luther turns to and will begin to direct Luther to scripture, will begin to direct him to um, some of these, as you say, Pauline books in the New Testament, like Galatians, Romans, things that talk about our release from the the bondage of the law, right? The fact that we could never live up to the ancient Hebrew law, the spiritual law of the old covenant. And so that's why we, Christ is so important, right? He releases us into a new state of faith and grace and all those key features of the Protestant reformulation in a sense of, of theology in the wake of the Reformation. One of my favorite stories about von Staupitz is how Luther loves to wake him up in the middle of the night, right? Um, he wakes him up in the middle of the night, afraid that he's Luther has sinned in his dreams, right? It's not even sometimes he doesn't even remember the dreams, but he's afraid that he's sinned in his dreams and he wants to go confess, right? That's part of what being a mentor is in a monastery. You do confession with them. And so again, another window of this sort of obsession, right? This obsession with the power of sin, the consequences of sin, wrestling with the devil. And there's this great German word that we're going to butcher uh, the pronunciation of, Anfechtung, or Anfechtung, which is what, right? Which, what is this word? And, and 
how can we see some of what that word means operating with Luther and his uh, struggle with the devil? Yeah, Anfichtung, uh, uh, hopefully I'm saying it correctly, is a German word. Uh, it cannot be translated to English, otherwise I would have been using this word a long right, time exactly. ago. Right, exactly, we wouldn't have this pronunciation problem. <laughs> yeah. well, it can be best described as a melancholic state, hmm. a state of sorrow and where one basically questions their faith, hmm. which is not really a good thing if you're a monk. Like no, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So that's sort of what he's struggling with. And that word can sort of encapsulate this presence and power of the devil. This presence and power of the devil, again, that's sort of coming out of this late medieval form of piety where the evil is more than a metaphor. The devil isn't just a symbol, right? He's real. He's present, right? Um, and he's sort of tormenting Luther in a way. So um, Luther sort of starts to come to some answers to these problems, right? Some of them are there are basic Reformation principles, right? Um, turning to faith alone, justification by faith, saved through faith and grace. Um, and we learn about this through the power of Scripture itself, sola scriptura. Um, a lot of these sort of problems with evil are brought back to Luther's attention when famously, right, Johann von Tetzel comes into the, the German lands, comes into near Luther's um, home in electoral Saxony, and starts to sell indulgences, these sort of pay-your-way-out-of-purgatory things. And in response to that, in response to that view of, of the relationship of God to the forgiveness of sins, right, this false theological idea, according to Luther, that you can sort of pay your way, buy your way out of the consequences of your sins, that he publishes the 95 Theses, right, um, that he sort of transforms... Christian conscience, we might say. He transforms Christian conscience. So describe for us a little bit what the 95 Theses were, right? What's inside of them? What do they wrestle with? And how can we even see maybe some aspect of Luther's struggle with the devil in this transformation of, of, of Christian consciousness? So his 95 Theses were about indulgences, which he disagreed. He believed that actions did not lead to salvation, right. rather one's belief in Christ. Uh, he would state, or Luther would state that we know through God's grace that we have a gracious God and a merciful Father in heaven whose wrath against us, Christ Jesus, our only Lord and Savior, has appeased with his precious blood. And so what this means is that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, are in a sense saved against the wrath of Satan. Exactly, right? Oh, it's only yeah. through Christ, right? Um, we're sort of, it's sort of an insult to Jesus to say that you can buy your way out of it, Right to buy your way out of it. And it's almost like a trick of the devil in some sense, right? Yeah, because um, Luther yeah. believed that our soul was in a constant battle between Christ and the devil. Right, yeah, constant, this constant tension between being pulled from the to the side of the devil or pulled to the side of Christ. And so people like Tetzel, people who are sort of corrupting the conscious, the soul of, of human beings are actually, right, obscuring the potential of our forgiveness or obscuring the process that, draws us towards God. And in a sense, right, it's, that's why it's so evil. That's why I think he is so vehement against this in practice of the selling of indulgences. And so in a sense, right, the devil is there too, like you say, right? The devil is there too, because the devil is in a, in a sense playing this trick on man, this trick on the church by allowing the, the sell of indulgences. So a, a constant tension between God and the devil in the human person for the human soul. And you have this great... Um, quotation, right? This great quotation that really encapsulates this idea. Uh, do not, yeah, what is, what are some of these words from Luther? Luther has a 
Well, luckily, his uh, conversations were recorded in a collection called Luther's Table Talk. Right. This is sort of after hours Luther. Right? Yeah. Luther at dinner, right? Where he's talking to his students, his friends, right? And there, yeah, some, some of the coolest Luther quotes are from that, from that book. Yeah. And so at one of the dinners, he remarked that those Satan sees not to play the Christians and to shoot at us his fiery darts. Tis very good and profitable for us, for thereby he makes us the more sure of the word and doctrine. So that faith increases and is stronger in us, we are often shaken, and indeed, now and then the devil drives out of us a sour and bitter sweat, but he cannot bring us to despair, for Christ always has kept the field, and through us will keep it still. Through hope and all manner of trials and temptations, we hold ourselves on Christ. We hold ourselves on Christ. What a great phrase, right? What a great phrase about the the power of the gospel, the power of Christ. And then also, right, what a great description of the devil too uh, to start this, right? Satan never stops plaguing Christians, right? And he shoots at us his fiery darts. You can sort of yeah. get an image of that in your mind, right? Of some Satan with his uh, firing at us. But nonetheless, right, Luther is adamant. Christ can hold on to us, right? Christ can hold on to us in that. If we're open to faith, right? If we're open to this new experience, that Luther is identifying of what Christian faith means. So again, there's a, a struggle, right? A struggle, and this str- struggle actually, right? This struggle actually increases the more you grow in your faith, right? It actually increases the more you grow in your faith. Um, it's kind of like this paradoxical uh, relationship, right? Um, this paradoxical relationship. What did you make about that? How did you see that idea from Luther that actually the devil tempts us more, uh, the more so we become tied to Christianity. Yeah. Well, like you said, uh, uh, attacks of Satan increase as one gets closer to their faith. And for Luther, he believed that he was doing God's work, not Luther's work. Mm. And so this is why Satan constantly harassed him. Yeah, constantly harasses him. You have this other great quote that, that I'll read, right? Um, um, from another historian describing his experience again at the Wartburg, right? Um, this is from Russell, right? This- uh, James Burton Russell. Okay. So Russell says that Luther describes the devil trying to keep him from doing his work in every possible way, right? The fact that I'm procrastinating to publish my dissertation, I'm going to blame that on the devil, um, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, um, he rattled behind Luther's stove, right? He pelted nuts at the roof and like rolled the cast down the stairwell, right? He appeared to Luther in the form of a serpent, in the form of a star, right? He grunts audibly like a pig, right? He disrupts Luther with smells, right? Gives Luther upset stomach, right? It's sort of, again, this intensity, his physical experience of the devil, right? Physical experience of the devil. So more than a metaphor, right? More than a metaphor for Luther's struggle with, with the devil. So I was wondering maybe what you thought about that. Like what sort of conclusions do you draw about Luther's life, Luther's personality, Luther's status as a Christian from some of these sort of quotes that we have, those, that one from Table Talk and then this historical assessment by Russell of sort of Luther and what Luther is doing here. Yeah, well, I think his uh, individual struggle with Satan shows how deeply devoted he was to his faith in God's work. And he wasn't going to let outside forces get in his way, even though uh, the devil would take the form of many things and cause great stresses in his life, that he would still remain faithful and not let that get in his way. Yeah, exactly. So unwilling to let the devil get in his way. This sort of reminds me of some of the things that Luther says um, in his uh, treatise on on free will and his sort of the bondage of the will, right, um, that Luther has this great debate he has with Erasmus, who you've already 
mention, I think at some point in that, Luther says that man is basically like this beast, like this mule or this donkey, right? Um, we can either be ridden by Satan or, or ridden by God himself. And I think that's why Luther is, has such confidence that the devil isn't going to distract him, right? That the devil isn't going to sort of tear him away. What did you, what do you think about that idea, right? Um, this idea of Luther's that were sort of ridden either by Satan and the devil. Sometimes it makes me a little uncomfortable, right? Because it's so black and white or this yeah. way or, or that way, right? There doesn't seem that much sort of capacity for, well, he's writing against free will. So there's not that much capacity mm-hmm. for free will, right? Yeah. So, well, yeah. This went against what I was taught. I grew up Catholic and so I was mm. taught that we had free will. Right. That our actions do in turn lead to our salvation. And so reading this is like, this makes sense in a way. Right. And so it made me really question Catholic doctrine, I guess. So Oh, interesting. Right? Oh, you need to you need to sort of read some stuff from the Council of Trent to reassure you in your faith. <laughs> yeah, maybe the second <laughs> you go, Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> right, but it is like Luther's writing is compelling, right? That's another thing, right? Even that imagery, right? Besides it's whatever however we might struggle with the implications of what he says. Like that's some powerful imagery, right? The table even his table talk, even his conversation, like we said, is powerful imagery. So that's something Something that always strikes me about Luther is his language, how he communicates, and what we learn through that communication about things like the devil, things like free will. So sort of maybe ultimately, what would you say is the the overall impression we, we receive from Luther about the nature of the devil? Because I think that's important because it sort of sets up a wider, because Luther is so important for the subsequent emergence of, of Protestantism, how he defines the devil, how he describes the devil, how he engages in the role of the devil is, is important for the subsequent unfolding of the Protestant faith. So what sort of general idea of the devil do you think we have um, from Martin Luther? I think one can take away that Luther believed that the devil was the source of evil. Hmm. In turn, this would cause man to to fall victim to temptations. Uh, and Luther's greater catechism, he discussed how well, he uh, examined the Lord's Prayer, and it says, "Lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil." This was a key part of Luther's beliefs that a belief in Christ would allow for one to resist the temptations mm. of Satan to not be that dumb beast, yeah, right? ridden by the devil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the the sort of reality of evil, the reality of 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 the devil, right, is something like you say, that I think is really an important takeaway from Luther's description of the power of evil uh, in the life of the believer, in the life of the Christian. I think he gets some of that, again, sola scriptura, some of that from the Bible itself, right? Jesus talks about the power of the evil one. The fact that temptation is real. Jesus is tempted by the devil, right? Um, It's a part of that sort of Fasting in the wilderness, right? Yeah, yeah. Luther's yeah. struggle reminded me a lot of the movie Passion of the Christ. Oh, interesting, right? Oh, when the devil is like tempting yeah. Jesus. Yeah, I exactly. mean, that movie is not meant for five-year-olds when I first watch it. Well, you were five when you saw that. I believe so when it came oh, out. Gosh, I mean, yeah, nightmares. Yeah, probably. and so it reminded me of Luther's struggle and Jesus' struggle, yeah. like how Satan was causing temptation and constantly harassing him. So that's just what reminded me of, I guess, thanks Mel Gibson for that. Yeah, exactly, for that nice sort of visual imagery, right, of that. But I think that's that's true, and I think that's part of how Luther resolves his own spiritual crisis, right? Growing ever closer to Christ. I think that's a, a lot of the reason why he argues against free will, 
with Erasmus. It's not because he hates human beings. It's because he wants human beings to be so close to, so at one with God himself, with the example of Christ, that we don't even have our own desires, right? Yeah. We don't even have our own desires. And I think, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Like this, that Christ imagery, right? From Mel Gibson, right? But also from scripture, yeah, right? Also, that, yeah, that sort of sees this deep connection. Yeah, what were you going to say? Oh, there's also another example of Luther using a scripture to justify his belief in Christ. Oh, awesome. So. Yeah. Uh, in the Old Testament, I can't, I believe it's Genesis. Uh, don't quote me on that here. It's uh, with Jacob's ladder. Oh, yeah. I think that is Genesis, right? Because. Well, anyway, uh, while Jacob is fleeing his brother, he has a dream that there is a ladder that connects heaven and earth mm. oh, yes. and that yeah. angels will move up and down the ladder. But for instead, for Luther, instead of angels, it was Christ. Mm. It is Christ himself that does, uh, descends to the Christendom. Oh, yeah. So that personal connection with Jesus. No mediator, right? The priesthood of all believers. Another great Protestant idea that yeah. we need no mediator between ourselves and God. Yeah, and this is what the devil hates most. Uh, a little quote here, it's like, it states, it is what the devil hates most and is perpetually fighting against. The devil wants wants to tear the faithful away from Christ, the ladder to heaven. So I think that hits the... Yeah, that hits the nail on the head. Right? Yeah, this, I couldn't uh, think of the saying. Yeah, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating imagery, right, that we can sort of pause and think about, right, um, that Luther's describing, like this direct relationship, this ladder between... Um, the transcendent world and our own world, right? Our own experience of reality and the devil, his role is to attempt to break that ladder, to interrupt that ladder or to tear us away from that connection. And again, I think that gets us back into this deeply individual, deeply personalized experience that Luther has of the devil. Again, the things you've mentioned, right? I'm literally farting on the devil, I'm throwing ink at the devil or um, again, the devil distracting him by sort of leaves and, and nuts falling on the roof, right? That's the devil, right? The devil taking away from Luther's spiritual concentration. Um, so what do you think of the state of Christianity's relationship to the devil today, perhaps, right? Is the devil as present to us, maybe, as he was to Luther? If not, is that a bad thing, right? Does Christianity in the year uh, 2020 need to recover a sense of of the personal experience of evil, right? Is that something that's necessary of the reality of the devil, do you think, Noah? Just sort of in your own opinion about. Yeah, a constant theme in the through my research was that how Luther cannot be considered a modern man because of his belief in the mm. devil. But if one were to, to take away the devil, he could in a way be viewed. Because mm. once you take away the devil, you're left with a, I guess like a selfless man who's reali realizes that he's a sinful man. Through Christ, we are saved. Right. But so I like wonder a reliance if we would, on Christ. Yeah, I wonder if we would lose something maybe uh, about Luther if we did take away his interest in the devil. So, uh, we would lose all these really interesting things that you've been researching, how he's wrestling with, literally wrestling with the devil, right? And how that's informing those sort of more familiar theological interpretations like faith alone, scripture alone, um, grace alone, that are so characteristic of Luther's reform. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder about that um, sometimes if we don't, part of the reason why maybe so many people don't have a personal experience of God is that they don't realize that evil is real. I think what's that C.S. Lewis quote, like the greatest trick of the devil has been to convince people that he doesn't actually exist or something like that, right? Temptations to modern man. Um, oh, it's not evil. It's just 
psychosis. Yeah. Oh, it's not evil. It's, it's uh, just my bad behavior, right? Um, and so the devil tempts us into thinking he's not real and his power grows. So it's almost as if maybe Luther's point is that, and I don't know if you would agree with this, that Luther's point is basically that one of the things that shows us how powerful Christ is is actually the reality of the devil. Um, so I don't know if you... Will you yeah, I'd agree with this. Like the omnipotence of God, how yeah. good exists because of God and evil exists because of God. Right. That's, the, yeah, that's part of his all-powerfulness, right? Yeah. Is that he is, in fact, everything. Right? He is, in fact, everything. So with that in mind, are there any type of concluding thoughts? Do you want to make an argument for the recovery of the devil? Um, what are sort of longer-term thoughts maybe about how this continues to influence um, the longer processes of the Reformation from the 16th to the 18th centuries. What's sort of going on in this period maybe that you would maybe draw some conclusions about in terms of evil or the devil? Yeah, well, Luther was really uh, deeply influenced by med- medieval piety, more so than other reformers, such as John Calvin. Uh, Calvin would like famously state like how he was a fool to believe such things mm. and would like... Yeah, it's amazing what a, a difference... A generation makes between yeah Luther and Calvin, right? But yeah, Luther said, or sorry, Calvin said that Luther was a fool to, to believe these things, as you were saying. Yeah, because yeah, like he had similar views on the devil, but they weren't as extreme as Luther's. Yeah, they're sort of closer to that sort of quote-unquote modern stuff than Luther's is sort of closer to that early medieval, maybe or late medieval rather, that we could say. Yeah, and then yeah. as time progressed, pro, uh, progressed, a uh, man became more skeptical to such things and. Right, yeah, as we sort of secularize, part of the secularizing process might be a, a decreased belief in, in the devil and in, and in evil, right? It's almost this bizarre dialectic, right? That as in turn, right, as our belief in the devil decreases, so too does our belief in God in, in some way, or it's fascinating. And we're sort of left with this religion of desire and individualism and, as opposed yeah. to sort of Christian orthodoxy. The devil shows how uh, powerful Christ is and how uh, powerlessness the devil is and in turn man. Right. So it just reassures that through that, Christ yeah. and... That we need God, right? Yeah. 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 Well, no, this has been fascinating, right? Probably maybe an insight into Luther that some of our listeners might have not uh, been aware of before, right? There, That there is such a, a deep component of uh, wrestling with evil, of temptation um, by a devil, a devil who's a, a physical presence, who's a a literal force, right? Not just a metaphor for evil, but an actual embodiment, uh, an experiential embodiment of evil in Luther's life. So uh, thank you for coming in and, and doing this with us. It's been awesome and it's been a, a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. <laughs>